This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. The last part is really important. <laughs> I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a, to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas and big cases today in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And it's an honor to announce that our program is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Please remember to subscribe if you haven't already tell a friend, give us a good rating, leave a review. The easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. The and is spelled out, politicsandreligion.us. Or feel free to connect with me on all the social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and post.news. I can be found at Corey S. Nathan. That's C-O-R-E-Y, S is in Sam Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Barbara McQuaid. Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan, where she teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, and national security law. She's also a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC and a co-host of the excellent podcast, Hashtag Sisters in Law. From 2010 to 2017, Barbara served as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She was appointed by President Barack Obama and was the first woman to serve in that position, which is kind of cool to mention since this is Women's History Month. Barbara also served as Vice Chair of the Attorney General's Advisory Committee and co-chaired the Terrorism and National Security Subcommittee. Before becoming U.S. Attorney, she was an Assistant U.S. Attorney practiced law in Detroit from 1993 to 1998, and served as a law clerk on the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan. Professor McQuaid graduated from the University of Michigan and then from the University of Michigan Law School and was born not too far away in Detroit, Michigan. You are a Michigander all the way. Thank you for joining us. I am indeed. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. All right. Since you're a professor, I figured we'd start with a pop quiz. Right. How many players <laughs> from the 1984 World Series champion Detroit Tigers can you still name? Oh, I bet a lot of them. Lance Parrish, Kirk Gibson, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, Jack Morris, Dan Petrie. Shall I go on? I might be able to come up with a whole lineup. But uh, I was at the Game 5 when they actually won it all. And oh, wow. uh, it, it, it is etched indelibly in my mind. And I, I do remember saying a little prayer during that game that um, if the Tigers could win the World Series while I was there, I would never wish for any of my teams to ever win anything again. And I've been living with that curse ever since. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Now, I do notice being a, a diehard Mets fan, I do notice that you didn't mention the third baseman, Howard Johnson. Oh, yeah. yeah, Howard yeah. Johnson. Oh, Joe. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we um, lost him yeah, to... Uh, 
Greener to the Mets, yeah, the next, I think the next year. And you guys had a great start to that season. It was like 34 and one or something Th- like that. 35 and five, 35 and 35. five. It was really, yeah. And, and then really went like 500 the rest of the way. But once you go 35 and five, it's pretty hard to blow it. It was amazing. Uh, 30 and games every, up. We were sure Sparky Anderson had sold his soul to the devil because they would, you know, you'd hear the Tigers are down, you know, like five, nothing in the ninth and you kind of turn it off, you know, that, oh, well, it was a good run while we had it. And then people say, you hear about the Tiger game today? And you say, yeah, it's too bad. The streak came to a close. They're like, no, they won. They won in 10 innings. They won 6-5. You know, you just couldn't believe it. It was uh, unreal. But it was a lot of fun. That's fun year. That's awesome. Yeah, I as um, a, a great sports broadcaster says, when I couldn't talk about anything else with my father, I could still talk about baseball. So it's Absolutely. very close to my heart. I'm, I'm just a fan of the game, but obviously a diehard Mets fan. So I was hoping that we could start in earnest. Can you take us on a journey from – watching Detroit Tiger games to, as a girl to U.S. attorney. How, how does a person get from point A to point B? Well, I think there actually is some connection between the two things. Because as a child, I loved baseball. I loved sports. And I remember being really disillusioned to find out that girls couldn't play in the major leagues um, or even in the little <laughs> leagues when I was a kid. And I remember being very put off by that. I also, you know, had very high aspirations uh, in a career and remember being told about opportunities that were not available for girls. And yeah, I looked around my school and most of the best students were girls. And I thought, how can this be? And so those injustices in the world really, um, I think, pushed me to want to compete with boys, to want to be, to excel in sports, to want to try my hand in traditionally male fields. I started as a sports writer as my first job. And I think part of what drew me to the law and also what drew me to things like civil rights enforcement and public corruption, uh, you know, the idea of abusing power. So I think the two are linked in a way that, you know, I've always had a chip on my shoulder since finding out about these injustices in the world. And I think it's what has motivated me to try to uh, do all I can to counter them. That is so interesting. So you were a sports writer, as you mentioned, before you got into the law. Was law something that you were curious about as a kid? Were there subjects that you were studying that kind of started pointing you in that direction? Or how did that all come about? Yeah, I I always was interested in history and politics and the law. And I think one of the things that, that likely inspired a career in the law was, you know, one of my earliest memories of the news and current events was Watergate. And I was quite young when all of that happened, but, you know, old enough to kind of see headlines in the newspaper and read about Watergate. And I remember asking my mother what Watergate was, and she correctly told me that it was an office building, which really blew my mind because I had always thought it was something the president had done that was bad. But how could it be an office building? And so it made me curious about what this Watergate was all about. And then I realized it was shorthand for this scandal. And I vividly recall President Nixon's resignation speech And the hearings that were going on and all of that struck me as just such a horrible abuse of power that the president could, uh, you know, do something wrong when he'd been given this lofty platform to do such good that it uh, it really interested me in the law and especially in being a watchdog against those who abuse power. I think it's what drew me to journalism uh, and also what drew me to the law. That makes so much sense because... There was some great journalism, some historically great journalism being done at that time. Uh, we obviously know the the reporting that was coming out of the Washington Post, but there was a lot of great reporting at the time. So a, a young person just coming into their own, having their own thoughts, having their own opinions, I can imagine where uh, you'd be drawn to 
journalism, you'd be drawn to politics, you'd be drawn to to the law, as you say. By the way, let me just back up for a second. I just want to give you some some props because what you're doing on hashtag sisters in law, it is doing very much the same thing that you describe watching the Watergate hearings. It, it is it is sharing an inside perspective, an informed, intelligent perspective with all kinds of folks literally around the world. And it is igniting our curiosity. It is igniting our our sense of, of wonder and interest about all of these interrelated issues, about civics, about politics, about the law. So I, I don't say that to like get on your good side. I just just to provide perspective because you I, I would imagine being a hardworking person uh, that sometimes you lose you, you might not have that context of really what you're providing to the rest of us in doing something that sounds like a ton of fun in sisters-in-law. So I, I do want to take a moment just to to give you that credit. Oh, thanks. Well, we love doing it. You know, there are three other hosts who are also lawyers who are women, hence sisters-in-law. We're not related, we say, but uh, we sh- we are united by our love for the law. Um, but I love having the conversations. You know, I'm kind of a news junkie, as are the other three. And we love a chance to chat about it and kind of debrief at the end of the week. We record on Friday afternoons. But I see it as an extension of teaching. Uh, you know, we we don't share opinions so much as we try to share explanations so that people can understand what's going on in the law and make their own opinions. You know, there's so much disinformation out there and so many people with agendas that are pushing uh, some viewpoint. And so we, we try to take some, you know, stories, news stories about the law in the news and and just try to explain them so that people can you know be the kind of informed citizen that is necessary to make good choices in a democracy. Yeah, and I couldn't commend it highly enough. The other uh, attorneys on there, great backgrounds, great resumes, just and and just a fun listen. Uh, it's Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, and Kimberly Atkins Store, in addition to Barb. So uh, yeah, look it up. It's it's a great listen, even for regular guys like me that didn't go to law school. It's it's really informative really a great overview and and even deep dives into a lot of the cases that are happening, some current events, as you say. So speaking of disinformation, you have a book coming out next next year. When is the book coming out? Yeah, I've learned that writing a book takes a long time, Corey. Um, <laughs> I started I started about a year ago and it's it's going to come out in a year. I do I have a, a publisher and an editor and deadlines and I'm working on it. But I've become so interested in this idea of disinformation. You know, I spent most of my career as a national security prosecutor. And so I see this as a threat to our national security. What started as information warfare by Russia and other countries has now been adopted, I think, internally by people from within, within. So the name of the book, the working title at least, is Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging democracy, national security, and the rule of law. Uh, because you know the, the technology we have today makes it so easy for people to spread disinformation. Uh, you know, you, a nugget of a news story amplified by bots online can be used and twisted in all sorts of ways to create confusion and to undermine public confidence in, in a way that is really, I think, damaging uh, our, our, the institutions of our country. And so I've been working on this book. I've been learning so much about it. And um, again, it's it's really more of an explainer for people, and that I hope by identifying it and naming it, it we can disarm it in some ways and build the resilience of the public against disinformation, so that we can uh, you know thwart it as a weapon. 
Yeah. And there are some prominent cases right now where that very much comes into play, uh, cases at the Supreme Court dealing with Section 230, the Gonzalez case, for example, as well as libel uh, cases, the Fo Dominion Fox News case. And we'll definitely talk about that. I would love to hear a little bit more about your time at the U.S. Attorney's Office, because you were there for a dozen or so years before you became U.S. Attorney. I was wondering if you could help describe for our listeners what that job is and maybe some of the changes that that you implemented once you got there just describe the the big big picture of what that job is all about i think being an assistant u.s attorney is the greatest legal job there is in america you know some may disagree because it's not the most highly compensated job but as i used to tell our new hires uh you get rich in other ways because the experience is just so phenomenal I often tell our students you should work, look for work that is interesting, challenging, and important to you. And those you know, three factors will vary. But for me, the work was just off the charts in terms of interesting, challenging, and important. So you know, we did everything from bank robberies and counterfeiting cases to national security, export violations. I had a case involving exports to Iraq during the war. Uh, we had a case against Volkswagen for cheating on diesel emissions. Uh, and then lying about it. We had a case uh, of a man we referred to as the underwear bomber who tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day in 2009. He was an Al-Qaeda operative. He prosecuted the former mayor of the city of Detroit, you know, violent crime cases. And you know, to me, some of the most rewarding cases were not the ones that got the big headlines, but the smaller cases with real victims. I can remember a case I prosecuted against a mail carrier who was stabbed on her route and we prosecuted the man who had done it to her, who was a former boyfriend. And, you know, when the case was over, it, it, she was you know, really very seriously injured, came within you know, inches of losing her life, stabbed in the chest. And after he was sentenced, you know, she just hugged me and talked about how grateful she was that she could now have closure and get on with her life. So it was incredible work. You know, you work with federal agents who are tremendous from the FBI and Secret Service and DEA and ATF to put together cases. And a big part of the work that goes unseen, I think, is the investigative part of the case, where you work in partnership with these agencies to get wiretaps or execute search warrants or use confidential informants to gather evidence. And then you present that evidence before a grand jury where you call witnesses and make strategic decisions about who you might decide to immunize to get information about people from within a criminal organization and then present an indictment, and then ultimately go to trial, which I think people have a lot more visibility into what occurs, because that's what you see in movies and television and books, and people have experiences as jurors. But that investigative part of the case, to me, was some of the most rewarding and interesting and challenging. I'm Julie Rose. A new season of Top of Mind starts March 6th, anywhere you get podcasts. The theme for season three is Finding Fairness. From health and immigration to prisons and pot, how do we get more peace and prosperity for all? Everyone has a role to play in making it possible for everyone in our community to have an equal opportunity to be healthy. Who deserves what in American society? So my parents were African-American. Their deaths were hastened by inequality. Our air has been bad all my life but we thought it was normal. The point of punishment should not be just punishment, that's barbaric. We are a nation of immigrants, but we're constantly attempting to thread the needle between our humanitarian instincts and 
our status as a country that follows the rule of law. How do we decide who thrives and who doesn't? Under current system, the, the Dalai Lama and the Boston Strangler get equal opportunity to get an organ. I don't think any community should have to carry this pollution burden, but right now it's being carried by low-income communities and communities of color. If I can save one person, then I know I'm doing my job. And if we can be as big as the NYPD, I'm pretty sure we could get the gun violence all the way down. What do we owe one another? We live in a world where my health is influenced by your health. If you're sitting next to somebody on a bus who's coughing, they can give you COVID. We, as adults, mess this planet up, and we have to take responsibility and clean it up. We cannot say, oh, the kids are here to save the planet and our future. That's not right. The problem of mass shootings in our country is fundamentally a community problem, that everyone needs to speak up and seek help. The idea that everyone's in this together and looking out for each other. Each week, Top of Mind tackles one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. So join me for Season 3, Finding Fairness, starting March 6th. New episodes of Top of Mind with Julie Rose arrive Mondays on the BYU Radio app and anywhere you get podcasts. You know, in another interview, I heard you describe, so I, I don't know if it was your first day on the job running the office or not, but the the underwear bomber, whatever, whatever it was, yeah. Christmas Eve, I heard you describe the stories of people on that plane. And that was very striking to me. Does that weigh you down or is that the, the fuel that, that pushes you forward uh, in doing your job as a U.S. attorney? Yeah, a little of both. So that case you referred to, uh, a man named Umar Farouk Abdul-Matalib got on a plane in uh, the Netherlands and tried to blow it up on behalf of Al-Qaeda. It was destined for Detroit on Christmas Day of 2009. I had been sworn in, uh, confirmed by the Senate as U.S. attorney on Christmas Eve. And the next day, uh, thinking, you know, I'll have a nice, enjoyable, quiet Christmas with my family to bask in the glow of this new title I've just been bestowed we got a notification early in the day that explosions had occurred on board this plane. And it was, um, you know, really surreal because I think so often our minds tend to minimize these things. You know, I thought, oh, I'm sure it's a false alarm. I'm sure it was just some, you know, noise that went off. I'm sure it was just some malfunction on the plane. And then once it landed, we learned that, no, it was an Al-Qaeda operative who had a bomb concealed in his underwear and tried to blow it up. And we learned from, you know, interviewing the passengers about what it felt like for them. They were on this flight and they heard a loud explosion. They saw a fireball inside the plane uh, and they heard people screaming. And then uh, the pilots who were incredibly professional requested assistance for an emergency landing. The air traffic controllers cleared the skies and they went down in seconds. And so to passengers who are accustomed to a long gradual descent, this plane was down in seconds and it felt like a crash landing for them. You know, they, they landed smoothly, but the descent was so steep. And after hearing this explosion and seeing this fireball and the screams, they really thought they were crashing to their deaths. And on board that plane were, like every plane, really extraordinary people. Uh, there was a man who was um, working as a contractor overseas who was coming home for one last Christmas with his dying mother in Wisconsin. You know, Detroit is a hub. So many people were connecting through Detroit for all kinds of places. Also coming home on that plane were 
uh, two sisters who were from the Netherlands who were going to New York City over the holidays for a shopping excursion. There was a mother with her infant child who had just been overseas to visit her husband who was serving in the military in Germany. And there was a family who had just adopted a child from Africa. And they had gone from thinking they had changed this child's life for the better, uh, you know, a miraculous uh, gift of, of life in America to uh, bringing him to his death. And so all of those people told their stories. And, you know, in some ways it is such, uh, you know, it's a burden for them to live with this. It's a burden to hear them, but it's also so inspiring. And you want to work hard to obtain justice for them. So I think that, you know, hearing these stories can be stressful for a prosecutor and sad and um, emotionally can take a toll on you. But I also found that it did provide also the strength uh, that I needed to get through cases. And, to you know, you, you always say that on a victim's worst day, you must have your best day when you're in court to represent, you know, the people of the United States in the way that they deserve. You, you know what? One piece of that that really catches my attention is that is how you've humanized. It wasn't uh, just a number to you. You humanized. They were people. They were they were human beings. And it strikes me that much of our folks refer to it as like a cold civil war. So some of what ails us as a culture, as a as a democracy, is that lack of humanizing folks that that we don't know humanizing folks this is it's not really a question it's just an observation mm -hmm. and i think we could use a little bit more of that so maybe that's why i'm just thinking out loud now i i that's maybe that's why it caught my attention when i heard you describe some of those stories is that we could we could use a little bit more of that um if you want to comment on that, you can. I yeah, do have a, a... I, I do. I think that sort of human empathy is very important. And I do think it's something that we've lost through a combination of technology and COVID, you know, spending more time alone at our homes, alienated. It's easy to think of people as sort of faceless and nameless and forget about their humanity. I think the same is true with regard to criminal defendants. Really important to remember that they have a name and they have a mother. I often look at the names on a indictment. I think about the, the care with which my husband and I chose the names for our children. And those defendants similarly had parents that took a lot of time choosing their names, you know, and on an indictment, you'll see the full name, you know, it's not just Barb McQuaid, it's Barbara, United States versus Barbara Lynn McQuaid. And you think about, you know, the love that that child had, or maybe lacked growing up and people are human and have complicated stories. Most defendants that I've prosecuted had complicated stories, had made, you know, terrible decisions for which they needed to be held accountable. But, you know, along the way, they were loved, they loved, or maybe they didn't, which is even uh, harsher. Maybe they had addictions or abuse. So all of these people are human. And I think when we think about that humanity, uh, it maybe makes us uh, a little more empathetic to their scenario. You know, so often there is a tendency, I think, for politicians to uh, proclaim that they are tough on crime and that every offender ought to be locked up and the key thrown away. Until you really think about that, you know, when their own uh, loved ones are the ones who are charged, then they start thinking about the circumstances a little more than, you know, whether people are good or evil. I think all of us are complex creatures uh, who are capable of good and evil. Uh, some of us make better decisions than others. And also many of us have better opportunities than others. And so I think thinking about our common humanity is really important 
uh, in any kind of work, but especially in prosecution or criminal defense work. Some really great points that are worth considering. You know, my kids are Savannah Rose. We took a lot of time to pick that name. Shalom and Ruckel. We also have Hebrew names. Uh, Jackie Boy, Jackson James. Who's uh, So Savannah is going to be 22 on Sunday. Jackie Boy is 19. And Emerson Riley, he is 18. Just turned 18 last month. I was curious. You, you have four kids. Uh, how did your kids, get, I'm guessing around the same ages, how did your kids get through and, and you, you and your husband get through COVID and lockdowns and all that? Well, we're very fortunate to have resources and the kinds of jobs that are, are pretty portable. So I was working as a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, our our law schools you know, switched over to being online during COVID, which was really hard, I think, on students. You know, for me as a teacher, it was inconvenient. It was a little harder to read social cues of whether students were catching on or or not because you couldn't see facial expressions or body gestures. But, you know, we had cameras, we could call on students. And so that went okay. My husband was working as a prosecutor. That was probably a little more challenging. But again, they were able to do a lot of their work online and the court suspended trials for about 18 months in the local jurisdiction here. My kids were in school, mostly did okay. But, you know, I could see them, especially the high schoolers, you know, just feeling kind of glum all the time. It was, you know, one of the things that makes school bearable, I think, for school-aged kids is, you know, you got to sit through math class, but after math class, you get to joke around with your buddies and, uh, you know, go to soccer practice and uh, hang out with your friends. And without all of those fun parts of it, it was just, you know, going to math class. And so I think it was uh, kind of a grind and I think it took its toll on a lot of young people. Yeah, my youngest in particular was most affected by it. He was at a point in his own development, his, his scholastic development, yeah. emotional, mental development. It really affected him. But you mentioned your husband's a prosecutor. I have to wonder what dinner is like, what those dinner conversations are like at the McQuaid household. Yeah, well, I'm very fortunate to have uh, a partner. And, you know, the secret to any success I've had is uh, my my very good choice in a partner my husband and I were both assistant U.S. attorneys in the Detroit office when I became the U.S. attorney. And because uh, I was not permitted to supervise him, he took a detail to the Northern District of Ohio. He worked out of the Toledo office, which is 45 minutes from our home. So it was doable, but, you know, a long commute. And he did it for eight years. What wow. an unbelievable partner I have. And so when I left the office, he went back to the Detroit office. But, yeah, I, I do um, think that our kids probably have it pretty rough because they get uh, you know, the double whammy cross-examination when they're, you know, going out somewhere, you know, but they, they withstand it pretty well. Yeah. I have, uh, one of my best friends lives in DC, him and his wife, uh, my buddy, Steve and his wife are both attorneys. And, uh, whenever I'm there, I make a point of hanging out with them during family dinner time or family meals. And it, it's so, it's so cool because it's almost, I don't want to say they're teaching their kids what to think so much as how to think and how to make an argument or how to defend a, a point. It's it's so it, it's just it makes fun conversation. They do it in a very informal way, obviously, and they're loving and they're fun. Uh, but it, it's really interesting to see two trained attorneys, successful attorneys and, and family time at, at, at their household. So I was picturing your household being very much uh, the same way with four kids. I'd be remiss before we get into some of the cases, some of the prominent cases, I'd be remiss since this is Women's History Month. Who were some of the women who inspired you and were there any in particular that mentored you uh, in, in your career? So, yes, um, in terms of inspiration, I, I really have to 
give a lot of credit to our former governor in Michigan, Jennifer Granholm. She was the first woman to serve as the attorney general of the state of Michigan and as the governor of the state of Michigan. And I knew her a little bit because she was an assistant U.S. attorney, a federal prosecutor in, in my office before I got there. But when I was serving as a law clerk for a judge right out of law school, she was working as a federal prosecutor. And she had a trial during the time I was working there. And I was so impressed with her skills as a lawyer. You know, she it was interesting because I think sometimes we think of lawyers, especially trial lawyers, as having to take on a certain kind of persona. And she was just very much herself. She had a delightful personality. She was a pleasant and competent person. Uh, I think she exuded those those things. And um, it really taught me that uh, you know you need to be true to your own personality to be a, an effective trial lawyer. And she was. and uh, and she became a mentor of sorts. You know, she was very kind about having lunch with me and talking about her path. And I found her to be a real inspiration. And in fact, I think if it not if it had not been for her serving as attorney general and then governor, I'm not sure I would have put my name forward as U.S. attorney. Uh, and I did put my name forward, by the way. You know, sometimes people say, well, I was asked to apply. I was asked to run for office. Nope. You know, that's not how it works. You got you to step up there and put your, your neck out on the line and uh, uh, hold yourself out as, as you, someone you think is a worthy candidate. And I, I think seeing her example gave me the confidence to think that I could do it, too. So I know, you know, that sounds sort of weak. But I think seeing is believing. And so it's why I think it's so important to um, have representation on courts and in Congress and everywhere, because I think you have to see it before you can believe that it can happen for you as well. She's certainly far more talented than I'll ever be. But, you know, seeing her break those barriers, I think, was very inspiring to me. So she was a mentor. But I also want to say that I think it's really important to look for mentors who are different from you, because I also had good mentors in um, people who are not women. Um, one of my first bosses, Judge Bernard Friedman on the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan, you know, older uh, male, Jewish, uh, different characteristics from mine. And sometimes those can be really eye-opening because they can share perspectives with you that you might lack. I had another boss, the U.S. attorney who hired me as an assistant U.S. attorney, Saul Green, older black male, uh, saying, you know, uh, it's useful to spend time with people who are different from you because they can open your eyes to perspectives that you might lack. So I think we're naturally drawn to people who are like us, that we, you know, at least from the outside, look like us. But it's really useful to get mentoring opportunities from people who don't like you, it's, it look like you. And so I try to mentor students of you know, all shapes and sizes and colors uh, and genders, because I think that all of us can benefit from the lessons that we can learn from everyone. I have lots of questions now, <laughs> questions that I didn't plan for. One is you mentioned Jennifer Granholm, now a cabinet secretary, uh, and you have some, if I may say so, please don't be offended by, by me saying some ass women coming out of Michigan. Oh, we do. Uh, your your current governor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, have, have you ever considered running for higher office? Um, I have, but I think that I am too selfish to make the kinds of personal and family sacrifices it takes to serve. I very much admire those who do. And you're right, between uh, Governor Whitmer, Attorney General Dana Nessel, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow, we are really blessed in Michigan to have some very strong women leaders and I admire them very much. But, you know, for example, uh, Governor Whitmer was the subject of a kidnapping plot. Yeah. Uh, her husband uh, recently retired from his dental practice eight years earlier than he had planned to because of the daily death threats that he and his his clients receive or his patients. Attorney General Nessel uh, recently revealed that she was the subject of uh, threats against Jewish officials in our state. Secretary of State Benson had 
armed protesters outside her home where she was alone with her then four-year-old son after the 2020 election, you know, protesting that she had participated in a stolen election by Donald Trump. So those things really give me pause. And, um, you know, I, I think if everybody thinks like I do, it's, it's a, it, it, we've let the haters win and we've let the terrorists win. So you can't have that happen. But I think I'm just too selfish in terms of my personal life and my family life to make those sacrifices. And I'm so incredibly grateful to those who do. So I'm very supportive of them. And I express my appreciation to them whenever I can. Another question that um, I have is, do you have any friends from the conservative legal movement? And how do those, if so, how do those conversations go? Do you discuss anything from different perspectives or I'm I'm developing an appreciation for it. I'm I'm a big fan of advisory opinions, David French and and Sarah Isger's podcast, and I'm developing an appreciation for the conservative legal movement. So I was curious if you had any friends and and how those conversations go. Oh, absolutely, and you know I think that there are very valid conservative arguments to be made, and uh, it's useful to listen to them. I try to follow a lot of conservative legal scholars on Twitter to understand what they're talking about, and I I think that you know until recent years, there was uh, a, a lot of give and take between people of various, you know, different political philosophies. At the U.S. Attorney's Office, there are plenty of people who are both, you know, progressive, conservative, and everything in between. Uh, what I think is different is Trumpism, which I don't think mm. of as being conservative in any way. No. I think it is bigotry. And so I don't have a lot of respect for some of the viewpoints expressed by uh, President Trump and others who adhere to that sort of mega philosophy. I think they're political extremists. But certainly, I have you know interesting conversations with people who are conservative and progressive. And you know, there's a whole spectrum out there of thinking about where to draw legal lines. We want to draw legal lines in certain ways to promote competing values in society. We have uh, you know on the one hand public safety and on the other civil liberties. And, you know, we really value both. And so thinking about where lines get drawn there isn't even so much a conservative progressive decision. You know, there's certainly civil libertarians who are very conservative, but, you know, just thinking about where it makes common sense to draw those lines. So I consider myself more of a pragmatist than having any sort of um, strong political views. And so I welcome viewpoints from all across the political spectrum. And I think where things really fell off the rails was Trumpism. And I, I'm hopeful that we can get ourselves back on track because I think, you know, loving America means considering all valid viewpoints that value all Americans. You know, it's a really good point that that we should take time to consider the conservative legal movement. I don't associate with today's Republican Party, frankly, no. um, or, or the shenanigans that are, you know, the, all of the hearings, hearings palooza that's happening in, yeah. in the House, for example. It's very, it's a, it's a, a philosophical framework that I'm coming to uh, understand and appreciate. But since you mentioned Trump and Trumpism, it might sound like a biased question, but I, I've become friends with folks who worked for the executive branch oh, at, at the highest levels during the Trump administration. And some folks have told me what's been happening to, to some of our institutions. And so having run a U.S. attorney's office, and I'm guessing still being friend, having friends and colleagues who, who still work for the DOJ, can you give us a sense of one, the damage, if any, that was done to the institution during the Trump administration, whether it's a neglect or, or malice? And two, if, if that damage is irreparable or ha has any progress been made over the last couple couple of years? 
Yeah, I think that there were several instances of damages to the institution and to public trust in it. I worry now that people see it as, you know, Mike Pence made a reference recently when he got a subpoena to testify in the grand jury investigation being conducted by the special counsel. He referred to it as the Biden Department of Justice. And, you know, it, it didn't used to be that way. It was considered the Justice Department. Although I was appointed by President Obama, I consider myself kind of an apolitical actor. And I, I think that in recent years, there has been this effort to portray the Justice Department as political, and I think a belief in the public that it is. And I, I blame the Trump administration for that. You know, William Barr, in particular, I thought did things that were political. Now, you know, Jeff Sessions was his predecessor. He had an he had a a, a priority agenda a, that you know some may say is political, but I think it's legitimate. He took a hard line, for example, on immigration. I don't happen to agree with that, but it's a legitimate prioritization of policy to take a hard line on immigration. What William Barr did, though, was different. For example, he intervened in the case against Michael Flynn, who was a Trump advisor. He'd been the national security advisor under President Trump early in his administration. He was charged with making false statements to the FBI about his conversations with Russians during the transition period. And he had pled guilty to that offense. But before he was sentenced, William Barr took office and filed a motion to dismiss that case, saying that there was no materiality to that lie. The position taken in that case was 100% opposite of the position that the Justice Department ordinarily takes in cases of false statements. I thought that was political. That was an effort to uh, show favoritism by the attorney general to someone who is an ally of the president. He did something very similar in the case of Roger Stone, who was convicted of lying to Congress about his involvement in receiving assistance from Russia on the Trump campaign. The coordinating of messaging that you know Robert Mueller found, although not a criminal conspiracy, was assistance provided by Russia that was welcomed by the Trump campaign. And it was Roger Stone who lied to Congress about that coordination. When it came time for his, he was convicted at trial. When it came time for his sentencing, the prosecutors made what they saw as an ordinary recommendation within the sentencing guidelines. And William Barr interfered with that. He said, no, that's too high. I am demanding that you withdraw that sentencing memo and file a new one seeking a more lenient sentence. That to me was putting a political thumb on the scale in a way that was completely inappropriate. So I thought some of the things, he, he also, of course, famously, I think, distorted the findings of Robert Mueller in his report, misleadingly telling the public that you know after all of this effort, he had found no evidence of uh, collusion which is you know, sort of not a legal term. I, I thought manipulating the findings in a way that was misleading to the public. So I thought that was very damaging to the Department of Justice. President Trump, similarly, I thought used the pardon power in a way that was not consistent with prior use, where he used the office of the pardon attorney to ensure that uh, clemency is being distributed in a way that is even-handed and fair. Instead, it appeared to me that President Trump did a couple of things. One, if people were rich and famous, they got a pardon, or if they had committed crimes involving public corruption, they got pardons or clemency uh, in an effort to normalize that sort of behavior. So I think all of those things were damaging to the Department of Justice. I think that's part of the reason why Merrick Garland was selected to be the attorney general to restore independence and public confidence in the way the Justice Department is run. But you know, with the way some of those people in Congress, Jim Jordan in particular, are targeting the Justice Department and trying to spin its activities as political, I think will continue to undermine public confidence in the institution. If I were a better journalist, I, I should withhold my 
visceral reactions when you mention certain cases or certain instances and certain names. But it's hard not to. It's hard not to uh, just be an observer who cares about our country, who cares about our civic discourse, and to see this is all – I mean to, to your book, I would imagine that you're going to be covering some of this in your upcoming book. It's all part of disinformation. Now, yeah. anytime that we can't – it's almost like I can't talk to friends who are still Trump supporters about the, the Mueller report in a, in a nuanced way because it's it's easily dismissed as no collusion. you know. And we have that sort of flagpole that Barr planted for Trump and, and his, his supporters. But I'm getting off track. So big picture, I was curious if you've had any pleasant surprises – coming out of the Supreme Court, and in particular, the, the justices that Trump appointed? Well, um, you know, I, I think my view of the Supreme Court at the moment is overshadowed by their decision in the Dobbs case, mm. which overturned Roe versus Wade in a way that I thought is intellectually dishonest. Courts are supposed to overturn precedent only in certain situations, and that is, you know, where um, there has been no reliance on the precedent where we have a new understanding of the facts or the law, or where the standard is proven unworkable in practice. And I thought none of those things were true. It was really, truly just what, in the words of Justice Alito, a finding that the original Roe opinion was, quote, egregiously wrong. And that's not how it's supposed to work. You know, um, when William Rehnquist was the chief justice, a staunch conservative, he had another case that came over the horizon, a case called Dickinson, which was an opportunity to reconsider the rule in Miranda versus Arizona. And, you know, Miranda, of course, is the case that gave us the right, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney, where police officers are required to advise a defendant of their rights before they can be interrogated while in custody. And we've all become familiar with that from you know, TV and the movies and the like, but it's not written in the constitution. And so many people believe that it was a bit of an overreach by the court that decided that case to uh, require that. But the idea was that to waive your right against self-incrimination, it must be a knowing waiver, and the only way people can knowingly waive it is if they are advised of their rights. So what Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote in Dickinson, which the court took up in the 90s, and I think many people thought the reason they took it up was because they wanted to kill Miranda. I was a new prosecutor at the time, and I remember thinking, here it comes. But what Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote at the time was, were I writing on a clean slate? I would say, um, no, there is no such right as the, uh, advising people of their rights because it's not in the Constitution. And I'm a textualist, and the words aren't in there. But I also recognize my duty as a jurist is to uh, follow precedent. And because none of those facts have changed, our, our understanding of the facts of law haven't changed, it has proved actually to be quite workable in real life. And people have tended to rely on it, that based on these rules of when we should overturn precedent, I need to follow this precedent. And so I'm going to. And so we are going to keep Miranda on the books and we are not going to overturn it. And I thought that kind of judicial humility and judicial restraint was a great example of the way jurists are supposed to conduct themselves. And I think the current court has completely thrown that idea out the window that, you know, if if it's egregiously wrong uh, because I don't like it, then I'm going to throw it out. And I think that's what we've seen in the Dobbs case. And we saw it in, um, it, we're, we're seeing it in other cases. And it concerns me about what might be the future of other kinds of results. Now, that being said, I have on occasion been pleasantly surprised. Chief Justice John Roberts upheld the Affordable Care Act. And many people thought that was a betrayal of his party, but I think he did it because he thought that the law was sound. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, I think, has on occasion found some really interesting um, things to say. For example, in uh, surveillance of a tracking device put on a car 
to think about our data, uh, our personal information about our location and our whereabouts as our property. It, that it doesn't belong to someone else. It belongs to us individually. And so I think that's a line of cases that is worth watching as we go forward. And so, you know, I, I think justices uh, apply the law according to their worldview. And sometimes people have a more conservative worldview or a more progressive worldview. And I accept the fact that when someone wins the presidency, they win the opportunity to appoint those justices to make uh, decisions the way they see it. But I, I do worry about this ends justify the means approach of throwing out precedent uh, just when the substance of a decision suits them. Yeah. One of the prominent cases right now is the Dominion case against Fox News. And speaking yeah. of precedent, it's uh, the Times versus Sullivan case from the early 60s is referred to. So uh, I was hoping that you could contextualize that for us by sharing what that case was about and some of the standards that that case established for us. Yeah, so that case is about the standard in libel cases when it involves someone who is either a public official or a public figure. So ordinarily in a defamation case, if you can prove that someone made a, a false claim about you and that it harmed your reputation, you can sue them for defamation and collect damages. The Times versus Sullivan case raised the standard and said, uh, if you are talking about people who are famous, public officials and, and, and public figures, so they don't necessarily have to be a, an office holder, they could be just someone who is very, very famous, you know, Rudy Giuliani, I suppose, then defamation has this higher standard of actual malice, which means that you made a false statement and you either knew it was false or you acted with reckless disregard as to whether it was false. And so in the case of Dominion, you know, this is a voting systems company. They make all of these machines. So following the 2020 election, people made false claims that the Dominion machines were either malfunctioning or were programmed to flip votes that were cast for Donald Trump in favor of Joe Biden. It was a baseless claim. It was false. And Dominion says it caused harm to our systems. You know, people didn't want to buy our voting machines because they believe that they malfunctioned. And there are all kinds of, you know, crazy conspiracy theories about how that came to be. And so they filed lawsuits against people like uh, Fox News and Sidney Powell, and Rudy Giuliani, and people who were making these claims knowing they were false. Right now, we're seeing some of the briefs come out about that, that Dominion has filed to show that not only were these false statements made, but that the statements were knowingly false, that when Fox News said these things, you know, that's why we're seeing these newspaper articles about how uh, some of the news personalities knew that these things were false, and yet they were told they needed to confirm them anyway, because otherwise they would lose ratings and their viewers wouldn't want to turn on Fox News. They might turn to another channel. So that is the job of Dominion is to prove not only that these statements about them were false, but that the, those who said them, Fox News and others who appeared there, said them knowing they were false. There has been some suggestion that the standard for making these claims is too high. And some of the justices on the court have said they would like an opportunity to review that New York Times versus Sullivan standard, that you should not need to prove actual malice, that is knowledge or reckless disregard for the truth, to prove a claim of defamation. Because if you did that, then news outlets would be more careful in what they broadcast and reporters would be more careful in what they write. Because if they got it wrong, there would be a penalty for that. Of course, the counter to that is that we want news organizations to have some freedom to make mistakes, because if we require them to be accurate 100% of the time and 100% accurate 
it will have a chilling effect and reporters will be less zealous in what they report. It's a policy choice. You know, all laws about drawing lines between uh, competing policies where New York Times versus Sullivan draws it allows some leeway for mistakes, but it does allow accountability where someone makes a knowingly false claim. So, you know, I think there's some interesting room for debate on that topic. You know, I don't like the idea of how easy it is for media outlets to get away with falsehoods, I suppose. But on the other hand, if you didn't allow them that leeway of mistakes, it could be such an astronomically expensive price to pay to make a mistake that you may see news outlets go out of business. So I don't know what the right answer is there, but I, I think it's a worthy debate. So backing up for just a second, I know you you have your law students make uh, arguments on both sides of a case. What is the argument that Fox News is making in this case against Dominion? Well, right now they're still in the pretrial stage. They're making motions. And so uh, one of the arguments uh, that they will make is look at the damages element of defamation. So if you can't prove that Dominion actually suffered financial harm as a result of uh, the false statements, then you don't have a case. And so sometimes that's the easiest place to look that, look, everybody knows that Fox News is more is, is infotainment that not all of these facts are true. And so you can't show that you were harmed by any of this. That's uh, it's a, it's, know, a, it's, it's a humorous argument to make. I'm sorry to cut you mm -hmm. off, but yeah, when no, I hear a... uh, Hannity or Carlson, uh, Tucker yeah. Carlson say, well, people don't really take me seriously. Yes, <laughs> I know. Isn't that so interesting? Um, they have made that argument. And in fact, judges have bought it. have said, yeah, of course, we all know that he's a news commentator. He's not a news reporter. And so uh, people take it with a grain of salt what he has to say, and therefore, you know, no harm done uh, from all of this. So, you know, that, that seems to be the approach that Fox News is taking here. But, you know, you have to wonder, it might be good for the bottom line, but is it good for the brand? I don't know. You know, in this era of disinformation, it seems that a lot of times people know that it's a lie and they're willing to go along with the con because it supports their worldview. Mm. Yeah. And a priori preference uh, and we just want fodder for that already arrived at those those prejudices that we come into it with. Now, you also mentioned something else. The, the, there was a Sarah Palin case that got dismissed and Donald Trump famously said, I'm going to sue you like you've never been sued before if their wishes were granted. Now, that could actually backfire, couldn't it? On Especially somebody like Donald Trump, whose relationship to the truth is, um, uh, shall we say, arbitrary at best. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, Sarah Palin did bring that suit and lost that suit. Yeah. And again, I think if we had that different standard that some of the justices have been agitating for, she might have prevailed. But it's that actual malice standard that can make it difficult for people who are high profile to prevail. And it, it can be difficult. You know, I think we often think of it as applying to people like Sarah Palin or, you know, high level public officials, a president, a, a mayor, a governor, a celebrity. But it can also apply to people who are civic leaders. And it allows people to take real shots at people. You know, I've seen this happen in my own community and really take people down and ruin their careers based on rumor and innuendo. And, um, you know, because they have to withstand that actual malice standard, it can be very difficult for someone to even undertake a defamation lawsuit. You know, you know that you are going to undergo significant expense, significant aggravation. Everything you've ever said or ever done is going to be, you know, dragged, dragged across the table. And so many people say, you know, it's just not worth it. And so it does allow the media to do hit pieces 
on individuals who uh, are in this category of public official or public figure. But on the other hand, I think we need to have a vigorous free press if they are to serve as the watchdogs of society that we need to hold people accountable. Because otherwise, you could have powerful people you know, threaten to put people out of business you know, if they make even the slightest mistake in their reporting. So it's a really difficult policy concern. I probably come out leaning in favor of the broad First Amendment protections on this, uh, just because of the need for it, I think, in society to protect us, you know, we the masses against uh, the leaders. But um, it's, you know, there's no easy answer to it. Yeah, no, I'm ambivalent about it as well, because, listen, I, I have a whole career in the entertainment industry. And uh, sometimes I was on the other side of the table from the Weinstein's who would, you know, mm. sue on the drop of a dime. They they yeah. they had a, a itchy trigger finger, and that did have a chilling effect on certain decisions that we'd make when we were in business doing deals with them. Or sure. um, sim- similarly, folks, uh, uh, a journalist, for example, uh, you know, in Buffalo, where where you started your career, might think twice about doing a really deep dive investigative piece uh, out of fear of, well, I don't have the resources yep. to defend if Donald Trump gets uh, gets that uh, itchy trigger finger and, and wants to sue me for doing an investigative piece. So I'm ambivalent about it as well. But, uh, you know, the other side of it is, listen, truth is a good thing, you know, I, and and we should be able to have some levers for folks that egregiously actual malice is is the term that that you've used and and that's the standard um that egregiously cross that line knowingly say false statements and do great damage to whether it's companies or individuals so i'm ambivalent about it too so one of the other prominent cases that i am really fascinated by is moore versus harper uh, the case coming out of North Carolina. And we've had actually some uh, recent developments in the last week or two pertaining to the case. North Carolina Supreme Court decided to reconsider the underlying case. And the Supreme Court uh, justices asked for additional briefings to help determine if they can even hear the case now that North Carolina has taken it back up. So first, can you describe what the original case is all about? And in particular, there's uh, the independent state legislature theory. What, what What is that and what's this case all about? Yeah, so the case started out of the state of North Carolina when the legislature there created a new congressional map, you know, as they do after every census. So in 2021, to reflect the 2020 census, they drew up a new uh, map. The uh, legislature in North Carolina is controlled by Republicans, and uh, some Democratic voters there filed a lawsuit that argued that that map violated the state's constitution that it was gerrymandered in a way to favor Republicans at the expense of Democratic seats. And so the North Carolina Supreme Court said, yeah, we agree. This violates our state constitution that guarantees free and fair elections. We're going to throw out that map. Um, You can't have it. The Republican legislature in North Carolina said, "Uh, uh, oh, this is not for you to decide, North Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, This is for us. If you look at the Constitution, it says the manner for conducting elections shall be decided by the legislatures of each state. We are the final word, that's it. So that's why it's referred to as the independent state legislature theory, that we're independent, we're the last word. Courts don't get to look at this thing. And so that's the case that went to the Supreme Court uh, to say that um, we decided on these maps and the court can't change that. The court heard our oral argument on that, but now, as you say, the, the, the Supreme Court in North Carolina has taken it back up to rehear 
the case. And so for that reason, the Supreme Court has said, hmm, do we still have the power to decide this case right now? Um, because, you know, there is this concept in uh, all of court's jurisprudence that a case has to be uh, ripe for adjudication. It has to be ready. And so if the state is still playing around with it, then the case is not ready for the Supreme Court to hear. And so it's, you know, there has to be what's called a real case or controversy. Uh, they don't decide issues unless the case is up for adjudication. And so if uh, the North Carolina court wants to reconsider this dispute, then my prediction is they're going to stand down. You know, they want briefing on it for the parties to explain what their views are. But it seems likely to me that the court will at least uh, stand down until the North Carolina Supreme Court is finished with it and then might take it back up. How unique is that for a state Supreme Court to rehear a case? And when it happens, what are typically the circumstances where they would rehear it? Because to me, it sounds like the, the court flipped and, and there are new uh, Supreme Court, uh, the, there are new members of, of the state Supreme Court. And for that reason alone, they're rehearing it. So I didn't understand the legal reasoning behind why they're rehearing the case. Yeah. I don't know why the North Carolina Supreme Court is deciding to um, to, to take up the case. It is, I think, a rare scenario that you would see it kind of backtrack in this way. But in terms of what the Supreme Court is doing, that's not really that unusual. Things change from time to time. You know, they they agree to hear a case many months before the case actually comes before the court, or sometimes they hear argument many months before they issue their opinion. And then sometimes circumstances change. You know, somebody dies, uh, the case gets settled, issues get resolved. And so if there is no a uh, case that is uh, ready, uh, you know, a case in case or controversy that is ripe for adjudication, they will frequently dismiss the case. Sometimes they call it uh, dismiss as improvidently granted, or, you know, they'll ask for briefing to decide, is there still a case for us here? So the fact that the Supreme Court is doing this does not strike me as unusual, but I don't know the underlying reason that the North Carolina Supreme Court is reconsidering the case. You know, I'm concerned about it because to my untrained ears, this case is the, the North Carolina legislature seems to be making case that when it comes to election law, more broadly speaking, that they don't have to submit to their own state's Supreme Court rulings. And it seems to me, at least with election law, that it might upset that delicate balance that we have between the different branches of government. Is Am I, am I too overly concerned about that or is it much more narrowly about redistricting? No, I think you're right about that, that it is a, of, of grave concern to people that um, it could mean that a legislature, if it wanted to, could enact all kinds of crazy rules, uh, you know, rules about gerrymandering or, uh, you know, the placement of ballot boxes in ways that are discriminatory in many ways. And if courts aren't able to review that, then you could have a legislature controlled by either party that decides it wants to put a thumb on the scale in a way that favors its party that really violates our idea of one person, one vote. And so I think it's a very troubling con concern. It's a very short-sighted one as well. Um, you know, we currently have a number of states with Republican-controlled legislatures, and if they decide, hey, here's a way uh, we can really stack the vote in our favor, it works for now. But then if you, uh, you know, change parties, then the other party has the ability to stack the vote. And I think that if we care about the rule of law, we don't want any party stacking the right. vote. It's also contrary to our idea of judicial review that um, you know, we have three branches of government, each with a check on the other. And if you say that you know, a state legislature gets the last word and this is not subject to judicial review, it is really contrary to the whole structure of government that we have in this country. So I think for all of those reasons, it's likely to fail. 
a lot of scholars, you know, conservative and progressive scholars alike, have written on this as this is a theory that is really not one that is grounded in the rule of law and should be rejected. And I think the court demonstrated some skepticism to this when it heard oral argument. So if it comes up, uh, it may be that this case loses, which might be a good result because then the case is decided and there's precedent on that. But it seems more likely that it's going to stand down, uh, depending on these briefs and what the parties have to say. But it seems like that's a likely outcome here. Some of my friends were are, are really concerned about this case and the precedent that it sets. But there was a recent case that was um, c- coming out of the Pennsylvania. It was um, uh, Kelly versus Commonwealth of uh, Pennsylvania in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And uh, it was I think it was Alito's and then it was um, unanimously. I don't know if it was, you know, I don't know what the technical legal term is for it, but it was unanimously dismissed. Uh, beyond, and we learned, or guys like me learned about the doctrine of latches. Uh, <laughs> the latches. Um, so, so if you want to, uh, rather than hear me stumble over what that is, I'd love for you to, um, if you remember what that case was, and and just, just to give us some encouragement that there was a recent case that was somewhat similar to this, to provide some uh, precedent and, and context for this North Carolina case. Yeah, and you know this comes a little bit from this idea as well. You know, this is during COVID, so in the 2020 election, remember things got a little bit crazy because uh, you know more people wanted to vote by mail, and so um, sometimes they were kind of changing the rules at the last minute uh, to allow people to vote. And so um, in Pennsylvania, there were some Republican legislators that wanted the court to refuse to certify the results of the election, which, you know, in Pennsylvania went for Joe Biden. And, you know, they said that, you know, they counted ballots that came in later than they should have been counted. But uh, as you said, uh, the decision was based really on a procedural one, which is this idea called latches. It's, you know, sort of if you sit on your hands too long, if you wait too long to make a legal challenge, then it's it's you know it's just too late, and so that was the the legal grounds for doing that. It, you know, they, they didn't file their uh, legal claim until you know in December, which is after the time for certifying the election results. So, in terms of precedential value, there probably not much because they just said in this particular case they waited too long to file their claim. You know, if you want to challenge an election, you kind of got to do it right away, and they they waited too long. I don't know whether their claim would have succeeded ultimately. Uh, again, but um, because of these administrative changes at the end, you know, they said they were violating the law set by their legislature as to when they would count mail-in ballots. Wow. Um, a lot, lots to, to discuss. Obviously, we're about an hour into this conversation. We haven't discussed the many cases against Trump. <laughs> uh, it, you know, in, in your bio at U of M, it says your interests include criminal law, criminal procedure, national security, data privacy, and civil rights. How apt, given the current status yeah. of uh, the most recent occupant of, of the White House. So um, uh, let me just ask you this, since we don't, you know, th- this has been covered broadly. So I-, I will ask it this way. Of all of the cases that are happening against Trump, against his businesses, civil, criminal, which, if you were Trump, uh, heaven forbid, <laughs> which one would you be con- most concerned about? Well, I think most immediately, I might be concerned about what's coming out of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Fonnie Willis seems to be moving quite rapidly. We know from the blabbing grand juror that uh, the recommending special grand juror there has recommended indictments against more than a dozen people. It seems likely from her 
conversations with the media that Donald Trump is among them. When asked if he was, she said something like, well, you're not going to be shocked. It's not like it's rocket science. Uh, and she also talked about listening to the call there. You know, I think in Georgia, one of the things they have that's different from other places is that phone call where Donald Trump asks the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to find him 11,780 votes. That alone is probably not sufficient evidence. I think you need other evidence but it does demonstrate that he was pressuring local officials to, to overturn the election in his favor. So I think that that one seems like it's the most likely to be charged the soonest. And I also think that one factor that exists in Georgia that doesn't exist in the federal government, where there is also an investigation that's far more sprawling because it involves all the states that were involved in efforts to overturn the election and is likely to come later because of that complexity, but in a federal case, a future president, Trump, could pardon himself potentially, or a different Republican president or any president, I suppose, could pardon him. Whereas in the state of Georgia, pardons are done by a bipartisan committee. And so I think the likelihood of getting a pardon is, is pretty low in Georgia. So I, I think that's the one I might be most worried about, at least at the moment, for, Don, for Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, one of the I don't know if this was an article that you wrote. I'm sure it's a, it's a topic that you explore in your classes at Michigan Law. How do we draw lines between what is wrong and what is criminal? And mm -hmm. an amicus brief was just filed by the DOJ uh, that I wonder if it maybe is tipping their hand uh, about whether <clears throat> whether they're considering pursuing criminal charges for Donald Trump's actions leading up to and on the day of January 6th. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts about what is you know, what is criminal and what is just what is wrong? Do you have any thoughts about that in that context? Yeah. So I think in that case, what you're referring to is they filed a brief where they said he should not be afforded absolute immunity for the statements he made on the ellipse on January 6th. There are some civil lawsuits pending brought by members of Congress and Capitol Police officers that when he gave that speech, he incited violence that led to personal injury and property damage. And so he's been sued. And typically, a president, like many government officials, are immune from lawsuit if they're doing something within their duties. You know, we don't want people to uh, refrain from running for public office if they think that I'm going to get sued for everything I do because everything I do is going to make yeah. somebody unhappy. But that there's certain acts that are outside the scope of your duties. You know, if you deliberately murder somebody, you know, that's certainly not within the scope of the duties of the president of the United States. And so he had maintained that, you know, I was giving a speech. It's my job to, do, to give speeches as the president. And they said, well, not this one. This was a campaign speech. This is not within your duties as the president. And so therefore, you know, we're not saying anything about the merits of these lawsuits, but just that the president should not be allowed to invoke immunity to get out of it as a defense. You know, the case should proceed on its merits. And I know there have been some who say, oh, that therefore that means they're going to charge him criminally with his speech at the ellipse. I'm not sure I go quite so far as that. I suppose if they'd come out the other way and said it was within his duties, that would signal that they are not likely to charge him for that. But I think otherwise, it's a little bit apples and oranges. I think it's still possible that they may file charges against him for a number of things. I think it's quite likely that they'll file charges for something called conspiracy to defraud the United States. And I think you can do that without looking at the speech on January 6th, based on the pressure on Mike Pence to overturn the outcome of the election and lying about election fraud. I think that could be enough for conspiracy to defraud the United States without even getting into what happened on January 6th. And I think if they want to get into inciting insurrection, a better way to frame that is the way Congress did in their January 6th report, that committee, and they refer to it as assisting in an insurrection. And they didn't look at the speech on the ellipse. They looked at it as when he he tweeted at 2.34 p.m. and said, Mike Pence had a chance to do the right thing and he failed us. 
he he did not do is you know stop the steal. And it was that tweet that you know sort of provoked the hang Mike Pence and caused uh, the people in the Capitol to continue their you know their insurrection. So I thought that was a really interesting way to frame it uh, because by then he knew what was going on at the Capitol. And so you know you might be able to say, gee, I gave a fiery speech. Uh, at the ellipse, no more fiery than any other speech I've given. I had no idea what would happen. But once, you know, at 2.34 p.m., you've already got people inside the Capitol. They're evacuating the building. And then he throws fuel on the fire. That could be a basis for uh, inciting insurrection. It should be noted, too, that the DOJ is doing one heck of a job. There are hundreds of prosecutions, perhaps as many as a, a thousand. I, I, I forgot what the, the number is. Uh, at this point in prosecuting the folks who committed crimes on that day. We, we can be easily distracted by the high profile figures like Donald Trump and others who were involved that day. Uh, but the DOJ is really arguably the, the biggest set of cases in the history of the country. So uh, that that definitely should be noted. I have three more questions and I'm going to ask you how to ask my third to last question. A uh, An attorney, a prosecuting attorney, gave me the uh, advice that um, one of the things that they do at the end of an interview uh, or at the end of a deposition is say uh, something along the lines of, what have I, is there anything else you'd like to say? So how, how should I ask that question? And, and that's the question, I, the third to last question I have for you. Yeah, that's a great one. And it is something people, is there anything important I forgot to ask you that you would like to yeah. share with me because there's you know important information I want to get from you. People say, oh yeah, well, and then I've got the murder weapon. Do you want that? You know, like, yeah. Oh, I forgot to ask you about that question. Yeah. I, I, I would say you are a skillful interviewer and have covered uh, all important grounds. I guess I just want to say this, that, you know, are you, am I optimistic or pessimistic about the future of our country? And I would say I'm concerned about the future of our country but I believe that, you know, this is a dark moment, but I, I think we can overcome it. But it's not going to happen by itself. It's only going to happen if we work toward achieving unity. And I think it requires all of us to do that. You know, you can't pile on when you see a smarmy comment on social media. Uh, you can't pile on and join the smarmy comment because that just contributes to this hate fest. We need to find common ground with each other. I think there's certain people who frame themselves and define themselves as being cynics and haters. And, you know, those people are too far gone. But so many people are people of goodwill who want our country to thrive. And I think you know, finding common ground with them is, is really important. So, you know, don't join the haters. Uh, be a lover. <laughs> don't join the haters. Be a lover. OK, that's a that's a great. Maybe that'll be the title of this <laughs> episode. <laughs> Second to last question. Well, I, I do have another question, but I'll ask you off air. So just a heads up. Um, second to last question. Do you have any questions for me? Oh, yeah. Um, who is the most interesting person other than me that you have yeah. interviewed? Wow. Um, so many come to mind. I have an affinity for some. It's like asking which my favorite kid is. Yeah. And it so depends on the day. Just, yeah. So tell me one of the interesting. That's right. Hard, most is hard. One of the more interesting people you've had a chance to interview. So many come to mind. So one that immediately comes to mind, uh, a guy who grew up a couple of towns away from me, and it wasn't really politics and religion, but he wrote this autobiography that was packed with politics and religion, a guy named John Popper. He's one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent harmonica player um, yeah. in, in, the, in the world. And he has, uh, he's been with the band Blues Traveler for years and years and years. And he commented on a post that I did with Matt Lewis, uh, an interview I did with Matt Lewis. And I said, Popper, 
you have an open invitation. I, I know you're not a politician or a religious leader, but you, and he came on the show and it was great. And Matt Lewis actually came on and co, co-hosted with me that time. So that's one that comes to mind. I've learned so much from so many people, Lisa Sharon Harper, a great justice leader um, who I've now become friends with and I'm producing her podcast. I just interviewed uh, a great scholar, a theologian named Dr. Roberto Che Espinosa. Uh, Dr. Dr. E, as I call him, is a trans, queer, Latinx, politicized theologian. Learned so much from Dr. E. Uh, Jackie Lewis, a, a religious leader in um, in New York. Uh, so many people. And Pete Weiner. Man, I've become I've become friendly with Pete. Uh, I've I've admired and respected his writing for years and years and years. So I I. Okay, it wasn't just one, but so many people come to mind. So that's the answer. It's one of the things that's great about listening to podcasts is you get to learn different people's perspectives. And it's so great to yeah. hear from people who've had different life experiences than you've had. And you can learn a lot by listening. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, last question, at least for this recording, how can we find more information about you, your upcoming book, Sisters-in-Law, and all the great work that you're doing? Well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Barb McQuaid. Uh, there's a link to my bio there and you can uh, find our hashtag sisters in law podcast information there and uh, a little blurb about my book. So that's probably the best place to look. Awesome. And it really is a great listen. It's not uh, it doesn't go over the head for uh, untrained guys like me. Uh, non-legal. It, it's just it's a it's a great listen because you you have such a great rapport with your colleagues on the show. Um, you're all so experienced and so admirable in, in your example that you set for for other folks. I really I really enjoy that program. And it's it, I, you're right. Podcasting is is an interesting way. We feel like we get to know these folks. Mm -hmm. uh, you are very personable, and um, you know, so, so one of my favorite segments is at the beginning of, of most of the episodes, the the four of you, or sometimes it's just three of you, share uh, something personal. There's always this interesting question, personal question that you share, and it's just a great way to get to know folks on a real personal level. So anyway, I really appreciate spending this time with you, and I have so many more questions, so many more cases, and so many more questions, but our time is almost up. So really, I, I'm just grateful that you uh, came in and um, spent this time with us. Thanks very much, Corey. I appreciate the chance to have a chat with you. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about talking politics and religion without killing each other. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's C-O-R-E-Y with an E and S is in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Yeah.